um, practical theology uh, second Peter. Remember, the reason why we are engaging in practical theology is because the Bible calls us to grow as Christians. There's no such thing as a stagnant believer, right? Um, uh, John Owen, right, the Puritan said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's no such thing as putting your Christian walk in cruise control. Uh, you're either going up or you're going down. You're going forward or you're going back. Uh, but that's the way that we are. I mean, we will be influenced by something. Uh, I think it was Lloyd-Jones who said, you better be preaching the gospel to yourself or the devil will start preaching his own gospel to you. You know what I mean? So it's, we're like sponges, you know. Something is always influencing our minds and our souls. So anyway, I thought I would remind us as part of that growth, um, just the, the basis of that in Second Peter, beginning in verse 14, Second Peter chapter 3. It says, therefore, beloved, since you, uh, since you look for these things, especially talking about new heavens and new earth, and, uh, especially these things, uh, you remember what he just got done saying, uh, when he just said in verse 11 that God is going to destroy everything. <laughs> wow, right? What, what a statement, <laughs> right? He's going to destroy everything. And says, and then what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So that's kind of what he's saying by, he says, when you look for all these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Now that is another summons to holy living, to conduct, to grow in Christ. And and the onus is on us. And I, I want to make that abundantly clear that uh, what biblical theology is telling us is that there is a responsibility for the Christian to grow and, 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 and to examine whether or not we are actually obeying this in our life, right? That we are actually being found in him in peace. Now, uh, there, when he says that you uh, do this, he's talking, he's speaking corporately as a church, right? That we would be found to be in peace, spotless, and blameless. So this is what, you know, many grammars, they call it distributive function of the personal pronoun. So he's talking to the group, but he expects that to distribute throughout all the individuals in that group uh, so that we all take ownership of that. And he says, he says, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scripture. So they're probably referring to the fact that some of the eschatology that Paul gave was difficult to understand. Um, and some people took it and twisted it uh, to a point where their eschatology became literally uh, unorthodox. Uh, I can think of, for example, the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, they had, many of them were starting to develop a, um, they started to develop an over-realized eschatology, which basically means that some of them thought that the, the second coming, the principle of the second coming was already at work in the sense of that they already had, they, they, they could already pull out from this world. Uh, they didn't need to work or marry or, you know, uh, grow in their families. You, you see what I'm saying? They started pulling out of life. 
And so uh, he even accuses them in Corinth, right, that you have already begun to reign without us. <laughs> Paul's not like, wow, you guys are so advanced in your eschatology. You're already reigning without us. You know, so uh, they, they, they went too far. So anyway, just uh, but but verse 17 says, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So there the summons, right, to be theologically astute, to be discerning. Uh, this is a big one. I mean, for practical theology, it all begins right there, right, that we be theologically discerning. Uh, and I think I want to correlate that in a second with a different verse. But look at what it says. But but he says, grow, and that's the imperative, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and on the day of eternity. Amen. What a beautiful, beautiful verse. And the other verse I was thinking about in terms of growing in your knowledge would be Philippians chapter 1. Let's look at that very quickly just in terms of discernment. Because uh, I think discernment is always kind of falling on tough times, but you 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 notice the consistency here with the apostles. There, Peter now Paul says in Philippians chapter one verse nine, "This I pray that your love may abound still more and more." And then most evangelical churches would, at this point would say, "Yeah, that's right. It's all about love, <laughs> right?" But then look, but notice what he couples it with. He says, more and more, in real knowledge and all discernment, right? So what he's saying is that if there is spiritual, if there's an appearance, and wouldn't you agree with this? There, there, there could be an appearance of spiritual growth in people's lives. There's an excitement. There's an emotional zeal. There are the, the presence of these things, but what Paul is basically saying is that it is a defective growth if there is not knowledge and spiritual discernment. Wouldn't you guys agree with that? How have you, has anybody seen that play out uh, maybe in your life or in the life of others? Anybody? What's that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Play out uh, all of a sudden. This, you know, who you would have called a brother or a sister, just became a heretic. In <laughs> yeah. Or at least they're spiritually immature and they don't know. You know what I mean? So, Landon, did you have something? Uh, well, I was just going to refer to just my own experience uh, in in prior churches, especially when I was younger in the faith, um, going to places that really didn't center on. Um, really didn't center on focusing on doctrine, studying the Bible. Um, a lot of the practices, uh, since, since Christ wasn't the end, the means were just unbiblical in mm. order to, in order to, you know, to uh, perform or fulfill, uh, you know, what, whatever they wanted to do. And so uh, a lot of the times it was a lot, it was very emo- emotion based. It was, you know, um, but it, it just like, it was this, a lot of zeal for certain things, but, uh, but at their end was not, you know, focused on Christ. Oh. 
That's actually a really good way of summing it up. Because the end is not the goal, right? Is not seeking Christ and the glory of Christ and Christ's likeness. Then the means in between is also, you know, very defective. You know, we can go on and on about this, you know what I mean? But this is, this is just a principle you find all throughout the Word of God, you know, that, that, that real true spiritual maturity consists of both the love, because notice he does say, I want your love to grow, right? But it also has to grow coupled with theological discernment, which that's, that's, you know, that's a big one. Okay, so, um, we see the, um, and I'm gonna point these kind of passages out as we go studying, uh, a practical theology, but, but because um, it's it's really important. But remember how we defined practical theology, right? Um, I got a, a definition on practical theology from uh, WikiLeaks. No, I'm just joking. I got it from <laughs> Wikipedia, <laughs> and I got it from Wikipedia. And listen, I've got tons of theological encyclopedias and dictionaries and manuals. I got a you know. 1500 page book on biblical counseling i mean i have these books i actually like the wikipedia definition of practical theology i thought it was very very good this is what it says it says practical theology is an academic discipline that examines and reflects on religious practices in order to understand the theology that is enacted in those practices and in order to consider this is important how theor- uh, theological theory very important and theological practices can be more fully aligned, changed, and improved. I think that's a priceless statement there because it's saying everything we've studied so far in this in, in this Sunday school. Uh, let's say, for example, systematic theology, and then we stu- and then we did a study of biblical theology, which I consider a very brief study of biblical theology. You might ex- you might consider it's like oh, you just went on and on and on. <laughs> I think it was very brief, but anyway, yeah. to spare you, I did not go on. Okay, but we took a lot of theoretical knowledge. We talked about redemptive historical hermeneutics. We talked about, you know, all these things. And now, just like it says here, we're looking to see how the- theory and practice can be more biblically aligned, right, and improved upon. And that's what we're seeking uh, to do here. Now, we've been looking at obstacles to practical theology. Obstacles. And what was the, what was last week's obstacle to biblical, uh, to uh, practical theology? Do you remember? What was the obstacle that we looked at last week? Sin. sin. <laughs> Everybody said sin. <laughs> that That is true. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, please, because that is really the first obstacle is sin. And I'm going to give you two more today, Lord willing, that we can uh, look at. Uh, the second one is going to be society and Satan. Now, by society... I mean something like what the Bible calls the world, right? Rightly defined. So, but finishing up, because we did not finish at all with the doctrine of sin or with sin, I just wanted to say, you know, we have to admit, right, in our pursuit to grow and all this, that we're still living in a fallen, corrupt world. And, and, and furthermore, we live in these fallen, corrupt bodies, right, that we are still According to Romans chapter 7, we are still uh, having to deal with the principle of sin that is still at work in our members. Uh, when we get saved, God doesn't deliver us from the presence of sin. Uh, and, 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 he, and he doesn't glorify us upon conversion. We are still battling the sin nature 
um, even though the dominion of sin has been broken. Uh, that's very important. But, but you see the struggle here, for example, in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, a very, um, a very familiar text, but still very important. Listen to what it says here. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, stop there for a second. Two things here, right? Well, there's, a, there's more than two things, but notice what he says, let us. What is, what, what is he saying when he says, let us? Let us is actually an operative word in the book of Hebrews. It functions throughout the book of Hebrews to do different things. Let us draw near with a heart sprinkled clean and full assurance of faith, right? All these let us statements throughout the book of Hebrews. And here he's telling us, let us lay aside um, every encumbrance. Now, remember the language of let aside is kind of like reminiscent of what Paul's language is. Right, somebody saying, "Well, this is a clear example of why Paul probably wrote the Book of Hebrews." Right, little uh, uh, sort of um, literary stylistic things like this. It would say, "Well, Paul, you know, this is something Paul would say." Well, because Paul wrote Book of Hebrews. Oh, I don't know that, but I do know that that lay aside is kind of the same thing he says in Colossians chapter three, in uh, 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 Hebrews chapter four, where he talks about putting off. Right, put off or lay aside the old man. And here we're being told, let aside, lay aside every encumbrance. And then he says, the and the sin. So, so two things, right? Number one, there are encumbrances or hindrances um, that 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 hinder us from what? From running, right? From running with endurance the race that is set before us, and he makes a categorical distinction. There are encumbrances, and then there is that which can rightly be identified as sin. But notice what he says also here is he says, uh, set aside what? The sin. Is that how everybody's translation reads? The sin, right? Every encumbrance. Uh, after that, what does it say? Oh, yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's and, and the sin, right? Yeah, and I'm pointing out the, the article, the, right? Because it, this is what they, they call an articular construction. In other words, it's definite. In other words, the author is saying there is the sin that hinders you. And so many theologians have concluded that what, what Paul or what the author of Hebrews is talking about here is that everyone has a sin that, that hinders them. This is quite possibly the, the meaning of the text that we each struggle in different ways, right? Uh, what does James say in uh, James, I think it's chapter 3, right? Where he says, let us not be, uh, te- let us not all be teachers knowing that we will receive the stricter judgment, right? Or No, it's, we all, we all stumble in many ways, right? That, in other words, we all have particular struggles to ourselves. And as one great theologian said, I don't want your sin and you don't want mine, <laughs> right? But we all have our individual struggles, our unique struggles and so in the walk of faith, we have to continually, habitually lay the sin, whatever it is, aside that genuinely hinders you from running the race with endurance. And uh, this is what uh, some would refer to as a besetting sin. 
This is a sin that holds you back, that genuinely uh, keeps you from growing and maturing as a Christian. You need to have mastery over it or it will have mastery over you. Yes, sir. I think so. Yeah, I think you can I think you can build your spiritual immunity to the sin, whatever it is, by your obedience, by your mortification of that sin, putting it to death, right? But so long as you're constantly giving into it, handing yourself over to it, expect that it will be harder and harder and harder to deliver yourself, let's say from a besetting sin, whatever it may be. Right. And so but but I mean, we, we kind of jumped, you know, jumped ahead a little bit. But notice he also speaks of encumbrances. Right. So we have to be willing to in a, in, a, in, a, in a in an act of self-examination, we have to be willing to identify those two categories in our life. What are the things that you can say are 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 hindrances? Right. That actually uh, hinder us from walking and then what are the things that are categorically sinful? We have to be able to identify what are those two things. Um, you know, we can each give examples, let's say, of things that we gave up or whatever. I remember years ago, uh, many, many years ago, I decided, you know, for me, for, for as for me in my house, <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I'm going to surrender the Christian liberty of alcohol. Uh, because very early on I discovered it was not spiritually advantageous for me, especially in the context of ministry. I, you know, very early on as a Christian, I, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be a pastor. I didn't know it initially, but I had the desire. I had this insatiable desire for, for the word of God and for theology and for study. And, and I just, I, I couldn't have told you back then, you know, when I was a young Christian, what the desire was really about. But all I knew is I just, I just want to know the Bible, understand the Bible and teach it to other people, whatever that looks like. And then that developed into a full scale desire for pastoral ministry. Well, I discovered very early on that my having my Christian liberty in that area was kind of a hindrance to my ministry. I'd constantly be explaining to people why I can have my Christian beer, you know, constantly explaining to people why it's okay for me to have a glass of wine at dinner, even though I repudiate it. I'm saying wine because that's popular. I hate wine. I'm sorry. I just, I never liked the taste of wine. But, but anyway, I just decided long ago, you know what? This is not helping me. Um, I'm just going to get rid of it. So, I got rid of it. That's not to say you can't have your glass of wine, even though it just doesn't taste good. Why would you drink it? <laughs> You're just like, oh, the wine I drink is really good. No. But you see what I'm saying. Was it a sin for me to drink? Not at the time. I did it with a pure conscience. You know what the Bible says. Whatever is not a faith is sin. So I could do it in faith, knowing that I'm not getting drunk. I can have a beer and be fine with that. Right? Um but but it became to the point where it it would have violated my conscience had I continued on with that. Um, by the way, I mean after I got saved, my tolerance level went way down. Uh, right? I mean, there was a there was a time where I used to pride myself on how much I could drink, right? Uh, but after becoming a Christian and you know all of that, I mean, I mean one Budweiser and you know that that was that was all I could even handle. 
You know what I mean? I, I, it amazes me when I look at Facebook and people on Facebook are these Christians, supposedly, these big giant glasses of beer. They're taking, hey, you know, Facebook all cool and everything. I don't know the thing. I'm just saying, you know, I see them like, how do you drink that big old glass of beer and not get drunk? Like, I don't understand. Anyway, maybe you guys can explain that. That's too deep for me, I guess. I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. But, you know, I saw a sign on the freeway the other day. Did you guys see this? Driving buzzed is driving drunk. You see that? I mean, even the world is telling you, like, if you get buzzed, don't think that you're not, when the law comes down, you're not going to be categorically drunk. You know what I'm saying? And yet we've got Christians on Facebook saying, oh, it's great to be buzzed. Anyway, see what I'm talking about? Practical theology. <laughs> We're stepping on practical toes, you know. But 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 it is a, it could be an encumbrance. Other encumbrances for you, it could be, a, it could be a, a, a leisurely activity. Maybe you're getting obsessed with uh, physique. Maybe you're being obsessed with health, with a diet. Maybe you're being obsessed with working out, right? Maybe you're being obsessed with a certain television program. Maybe you're being, and it's holding you back spiritually from growing. I mean, that, that we have to take stock. What is actually hindering us from running the race? And so what when he says here, let us run the race with endurance, what's he talking about? Think about the theology of Hebrews. What do you think he's talking about theologically as we understand now the book of Hebrews since we've been in it for so long? Robert? Lifelong perseverance. Lifelong perseverance. Okay. In what? For what? In the context of what? gospel the goal okay anybody else yeah yeah amen i mean i mean you just look at the book of hebrews what's what's the whole thrust of hebrews saying yeah i mean the 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 whole thrust of, of hebrews is saying look you're in the new covenant now right let us press on right let us press in let us draw near everything in, in Hebrews because of the new covenant is reminding us that we have unspeakable access to the throne of God. We have unspeakable access to to commune with God right by faith. Uh, we we're no longer bound by the types and shadows of the old covenant. We no longer have to go through the ceremonial law in order to draw near to God. Therefore, because we are ceremonially clean, draw near to God right? Draw near to Christ. And apostasy, very relevant. Many people were attacking this young new covenant community of God's people, trying to draw them back towards an old covenant expression and an old covenant orientation. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. That was inferior, right? He, he, He replaces the first, he makes the first covenant obsolete and the second is better, much greater, Right. All of this. So what I'm saying is that in Hebrews, strictly speaking, running the way the race with endurance that is set before us is that we uh, do not give up our new covenant status and our new covenant privileges that are in Christ. Uh, phenomenal. So that that is also very important. Now, let's move on because we'll never get off sin. Let's move on to society. See how I alliterated this for you. Right. So when you sit around the table with family or friends, you can remember it was sin, society, and Satan, right? That these are the obstacles to practical theology. The next one, of course, is society. And so here, let's turn to 1 John. 
right? Obviously a classic statement on um, the world in which we live. Now that's why I underscored the word world, right? Because according to the Bible, there are many definitions to the word world. What are some of them? When you read the Bible, sometimes the Greek word here, you know, cosmos is talking about something other than um, society. What else can it talk about? The planet. What else? Humanity. Right. So is the Bible telling us abstain from humanity? You can't. Right. What are you going to do Monday morning when you got to go to work? You can't abstain from humanity. That's not possible. What else? What else is the world talking about? Oh yeah, so a worldview. That's right. Yeah, the worldview, uh, the unbelieving worldview. These kinds of right. The world, uh, the planet. How about this? The creation, right? Uh, it can refer to more than just our planet. It can refer to the entire universe terms of world uh, also it can refer to a large uh, group of some kind right it says that when jesus was out preaching the whole world came out to him what is that talking about it's not it's speaking regionally right a large group of people were out to him the pharisees weren't saying the whole world came out to him meaning every every individual on planet earth actually came out to jerusalem to see jesus right so uh, it, listen if we can use modern euphemisms so can the bible right i get these kids you know at, at uh, i call them kids i'm 40 now so you know a 19 year old college student is a kid to me but you know these get these college kids you know the bible says the earth is flat because it talks about the four corners of the world you know <laughs> it's just like well so the bible can't talk in you know in euphemistic language it can't it can't use you know certain rhetorical devices that you and i use and by the way it's like well then you definitely haven't been around long because people still talk about the four corners of the earth you know what i mean people still talk about that or to the ends of the earth what does that mean you get to the end you're gonna fall off i mean give me a break <laughs> some flat earth people online might say yes <laughs> but you see of these what is john talking about He's not talking about the planet. He's not talking about humanity. He's talking about a worldview, right? So let's look at this worldview. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. Wow. Now that's phenomenal there, right? Because he makes two distinctions here, folks. This is first John chapter two, verse 15 to 17. Yeah, this is a big one. First John two, 15 to 17. Do not love the world nor the things in the world um the the apostle john is known as the apostle of uh yeah he, he's he's known as the apostle of light and darkness truth and error right for the apostle john i mean he saw things as black and white there was no middle ground right it's like you're either in the world or you're in god i mean that's it you know you're either in light or you're in darkness you're either in truth or you're in error you know he he speaks in these dualisms uh, these antithetical dualistic ways that are, are are very unique to him. Uh, and so he says here, do not love the world, number one, nor the things in the world. That's amazing. Now, I will say this, that there's a principle here. What John is saying is that what he's saying is that, yeah, in, in a real sense, the things of the world are even the non-sinful things of the world, even the things that are good, 
right? Here, you, you guys stay there. You can go there if you want. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I think kind of gives us sort of a commentary on that point. And I've quoted you this before, but I think this is kind of what John is saying in this regard, that we are to be those who live at the end of the age. The eschatological ages uh, have intersected, which means um, that we are now to live understanding the times, that the times are short. That's what he says. The times have been shortened. First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, um, he says that here somewhere, doesn't he? 31. Thank you, Russell. Wait, are you right about that or are you just throwing that out? No, you're just as wrong as I was. And no, actually, I think it's right before that somewhere. Um, oh boy. Time, time, time. We're looking for time. Is it 29? The time has been shortened. That's what I was talking about. The time has been shortened. What is, what is Paul saying there? Has, has, is, has the Lord like literally shortened the time that humanity is going to live on earth? Right? You kind of fast forwarded it real quick. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying, you remember, is that with the coming of Christ is the coming of the coming age. It's literally the breaking in of the age to come by the coming of Christ. So if you look at the plan of redemption in totality, when Christ came to the earth, it was the intrusion of the age to come into our age. It's amazing. Well, in other words, what the apostles understood was Christ coming to earth was the signal that the time is short, is at hand. That's why Jesus could say the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Therefore, repent, believe in the gospel because um, when Jesus came, there's nothing else to come. We're not awaiting some other thing that needs to happen, right? I mean, what comes after the coming, the first coming of Christ? What comes after that? Second coming of Christ. That's it, right? He wraps it all up. It's, it's unbelievable. Um, so... What this is saying right here is in light of that eschatology. Oh, oh, yes. And this is a parallel. Now look here. It says, and it says, because it's been shortened so that from now on, those who have wives should be as they that, that had none. And we're, we're going to explain that. <clears throat> and those who weep as though they did not weep and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice and those who buy as those that did not possess. Now verse 31 is critical. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. I believe that is the interpretation. And look at the parallel concept. For the form of this world is passing away. If you are infatuated with the things of this life, the fashions, the trends, the technology, the politics, whatever, if you are just obsessed and infatuated, it has your heart. Right? What is Luther? I just heard this quote. Luther said, whatever your heart loves, there is your God. Wow. And Luther kind of like John kind of spoke in black and white terms. (laughs) Uh, You know, he, he general, over generalizations at times, but they're good. They, 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 they kind of, you know, sort of balance us out, right? Because he's saying here, the form of this world is passing away. What is John saying? Go back to first John chapter two. Right, First John chapter two verse fifteen says, "Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him." Wow, that's remarkable, folks. 
This is a parallel. Where did John get this idea? Did he get it from Paul? I would say no. Where did he get this concept from? He got it from Jesus. Don't store your treasures on earth where moth and thief and, you know, everything, right? Rust, right? No, store your treasure in heaven. Where your heart is, there, there, where your treasure is, there is your heart also, right? So he's just following in the sayings of Jesus. That's what he's doing. And he's expounding on these things as an apostle. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And there we go. So now we see that what he's saying is the source of all these things is a particular worldview, a system of morals and ethics and beliefs and standards and 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 and, and those and and philosophies right um oh let, let's finish verse 17 says the world just like just like paul the world is passing away just like paul right that's 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 the, that's the thing is that is that when you become infatuated with especially the sinful things of this world, what you're doing is you're buying into a system that is destined to fade away, right? You're you're identifying with something that doesn't belong to the age to come. You're buying into something, you're investing into something that belongs to the present evil age that is destined to fade away, right? So it's like, it's like your soul is in the wrong, it's in the wrong age. You're in the wrong age, you know, you're in the wrong eschatology. You're identifying with the wrong realm. That's phenomenal. I mean, when you do these parallels in the Bible, um, there's kind of the age to come, and that is symbolic with the world, uh, that is symbolic with, I don't know, um, let's see, uh, flesh, all of these categories, uh, the age to come, the world, the flesh, uh, all these things. But, uh, but the, the opposite of this, no, 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 no. You guys should have corrected me. <laughs> I'm going to call it this age, right? You guys should have corrected me there. You guys dangled me out there like <laughs> chopped liver for so long. Kind of. Kind of. Yeah, that's right. What Stephen Ewell gave us was this, right? Right? No, no, no. It's this age. This age, right? And then the age. To, I correct him. <laughs> The reason why I put the age to come is because the age to come is what conforms to heaven, right? This is the heavenly, right? This is the heavenly realm, and this is earthly. This dualism you see all over the Bible, by the way, folks, all over the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 45, you see this Adam-Christ dualism, and by the time you get down to the very end, what is his conclusion? That if you're in Adam or if you're in Christ, you either belong to the heavenly realm or the earthly realm. That's what he's saying. So being in Adam or being in Christ actually makes you 
puts you in one of two realms. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. It's life-changing if you think about it, that in Christ you belong to the order of heaven. You know. Uh, so, yeah, age to come. And then this is, uh, this, is, this is kind of the first coming, right? This is the first coming. And now you guys got me all in this eschatological diagram. And, you know, but this is like old, te- this is like history, right? Biblical history. And this is, you know, the age, represents the age to come in heaven. When Christ came, he brought the age to come with him down to earth, down to this age, to the present age, so that now there is this, there's this overlapping of the kingdom until, until he comes back again in the second coming. And when the second coming comes, all there will be is the age to come. You know, um, any questions? Let's do questions. We, we have a little bit of time left here, but um, any, anything you guys? I was just going to say um, that diagram's a whole lot simpler than everybody thinks. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. I think. Right? <laughs> Saying thank you? Is that what it was? I tried. Right? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, this age, the age to come is representative of what? If this is the sphere of sin the world, the flesh, then this is the sphere of, of, of heaven, right? This is the sphere of the spirit as opposed to the flesh, right? And as opposed to sin, this is the sphere of salvation, right? When you belong to the age to come. And what should it look like? Well, this is what it looks like. It looks like this. It looks like you are no longer infatuated with this system, right? You identify it for what it is, you see? And and you see it all around you. Where do you see it? What are some expressions of this system that you're seeing right now? <laughs> I knew you could say that. <laughs> uh, sadly, I think they're both in this. <laughs> the political system is flawed. I mean, just... You know what I mean? It's all about appealing to man's carnal desires. I mean, that's all it is. What else belongs to this present evil age that we see all around us? Think of different spheres. Entertainment, media, anything else? Sexuality. Yeah, very much so. Many people's identity is wrapped up in this. You know, you see what I'm saying? So a Christian life is to live otherworldly. Right is to live as if it is to live because we are citizens of heaven, right? Like Paul says, Philippians chapter three verse twenty, we have a dual citizenship, right? Our citizenship is in heaven, right? We are partakers of the divine nature. Where's that? Where's that at? Amen. Which is, I think, where's that? Second Peter chapter one. Juan. I think it does. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, if you don't see that the ages have overlapped, right? And um, I mean, I, 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 I'm wondering practically, I don't think so. But knowing your eschatology, at least in this system, right, um, should just highlight even more. It should, it should really bring it out that you belong to the new age, to the age to come, you know. Um, the apostles saw themselves... As living 
uh, at the end of the age and living in a time when the age to come in heaven had already begun. It already began. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, I think it's verse 24, says that, uh, or 26, says that uh, the, the, the emergence of the new covenant is the consummation of the ages. I mean, this is how, this is how much realized eschatology they possessed. They thought, this, we're looking at God's already consummating the ages. He's summing it all up. It's all, it's over, right? And he's done, he's given us the final chapter through Jesus Christ. Anything else? Anyone? Really no, yes ma'am. Oh boy. <laughs> Especially if you're in a public bathroom somewhere, right? My days are passing by, falling stars. That's, that's right. Yeah, we were on the way here. My wife and I were listening to an autobiography of George Mueller, and uh, the principle, you know, is I think definitely as we get closer to the to the end, even in our own lives, to get real practical, right? But as we get closer to, end, I mean, we should we should be more zealous as we go on. That's my thought. J.C. Ryle has a whole thing about the lack of old zeal, right, and how rare it is for elderly people to be genuinely zealous for god and for the kingdom of god and uh, you know i mean that's something we should all pray oh god deliver me from apathy in my old age you know what i mean i should be more zealous for god as i get older you know and less zealous for the things of this world you know anyway any other questions statements comments anything you sure Amen. Yeah. Romans thirteen eleven, and fall to thirteen. Yeah, yeah. That's a that's an amazing parallel passage. I had that down here, didn't get to it. But uh, and then next week, Lord willing, we will look at Satan. Uh, you want to find out everything you want to know about Satan, but we're afraid to ask. Come next week. It's important because uh, Scripture calls us to know and to be aware of our of our adversary. So let's. Let's do that. Let's uh, let me pray, and we'll go. To, we'll go to worship. Father, again, we thank you for 
just the practicality of all of these things in our daily lives just shows us how much you care. That you don't just care about the head knowledge that resides in our in our mind, but you care about our hands, our feet, our eyes. You care about our bodies, what we do for your glory. And so, Father, give us strength. Lord, give us, uh, give us the grace that we need. Empower us to live a holy life for your glory as we just begin to talk about practical theology now, Lord. We, we, we ask for your, your guidance and your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.